So how many of you this morning have some form of identification in your pocket? A driver's license, a passport, a work ID, and how many of you used your identification sometime in this past week to get into your workplace, to buy something uh, at the grocery store, uh, perhaps to get um, to the backstage of a concert? Better yet, how many of you have used someone else's ID in a legal way uh, this past week to get you someplace that you never could have gone on your own? While I was in seminary, there was a student who played briefly for the Jacksonville Jaguars long enough to receive his NFL Players Association card. And on one occasion, a group of students went with him to downtown Orlando. And whenever he flashed that card, we got into all kinds of VIP rooms and places that I never even knew existed. Now, many of you have probably had that same experience in D.C. We have gotten into places, into rooms, because of the person with whom we are with. That's what this story is about. It's the power of identification and who we identify with and the access that it gives us. So we want to look at three relationships in this story. And first, we want to look as Elisha identifies with the Shunammite. Just to give you a little background here. So as Elisha would have been traveling a familiar route, going around and prophesying, he encountered this Shunammite woman and her family who opened up their home with the gift of hospitality and would serve him a meal from time to time. They developed a relationship, and so her husband added on to their house, building uh, him a room upstairs so that when he traveled through this area, he might have a place to sleep. So we see that this is a delightful family with the gift of hospitality, and Elisha wanted to do something for this family. And so he asked her, what can I do for you? You know, I have access uh, to the king or the commander of the army, and I would be glad to identify you with me if you have any needs or wants. And our admiration of this woman only grows as she says, I need nothing. And so Elisha calls his personal assistant, Gehazi, to come to him and says, do you have any ideas what we can do for this woman? And Gehazi points out that this woman has no child, she has no son. Now, for us, even in this day and age, infertility is a great struggle. Even more so for a woman living during this time, as the heir, the son, would have been her financial security. And the text tells us that her husband is already old in age. And in addition to this, that a woman's value during this time was often regarded with her ability to have children. So there would have been a social stigma attached to her infertility. So this would have been a great source of pain in her life. So Elisha told her that in a year, about this time next year, she would give birth to a son. The one thing that you lack will be solved. And it happened. And yet some time later, the child... We don't know the exact age of the child, but commentators suggest that the child would have been likely between the ages of three and nine. The child was old enough to go out to the fields with his father, but the child was young enough, small enough to still sit in the lap of his mother. 
So on one occasion when the son is out in the fields working with the reapers, his head begins to hurt. Um, His father, knowing that in that climate, in that dry um, heat, that this was a common occurrence and he simply sends uh, the son, the child, back into the house with a servant who sits on his mother's lap and then the child dies. And then the Shunammite woman does something a bit strange. She takes the child upstairs, she puts him in Elisha's room, lays him in his bed, comes downstairs, does not tell her husband what has happened, and only uh, proceeds with the greatest of haste about 20 miles away to Mount Carmel to seek Elisha. She again bypasses Gehazi, uh, his personal assistant, saying, I need to speak with Elisha. She clings to his leg and refuses to leave until Elisha concedes to come with her back to her home. Elisha gets there, and then perhaps the strangest part of the story occurs in verse 33. Elisha goes up to the room, shuts the door, stretches out on the child, and puts his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his palms on his palms. And as he stretched out on the child, the child becomes warm. So he gets up, he walks around, and then he goes back and repeats the same process. And this time, the child sneezes seven times and opens his eyes. What in the world is this about? This is a very weird text. What are we to do with this story of Elisha and this young child? Well, Elisha, in this story, I would suggest to you, is doing as much as possible to identify with the child in the state of death. He is stretching out over the boy, mirroring his body with the child's body, filling the exact same space so that if one were to look at uh, Elisha and the child, you would only see Elisha, the prophet. Now, it's strange when we first read this, but actually, I think we do similar acts. About a year ago, I was on the Capitol Fellows Retreat. We go to this beautiful home in the mountains of, of Pennsylvania, and it had recently snowed, and so behind the house, there was this really not a hill, but a mountain, and all of the fellows were out sledding, and my four-year-old wanted to join them and go sledding. So me being the faithful, brave, loving dad, grabbed my son in an inner tube, and we began the trek up the mountain. Uh, He kept insisting that we go higher and higher, and so we climbed higher and higher until at last we put the inner tube down, hopped on, and proceeded down the hill. Our speed picked up and picked up until I was panicked, and I could only imagine my wife in the house shrieking with fear as she sees the speed of which her four-year-old is going down the mountain. I was legitimately scared. So what I began to do was to wrap my body around Graham. I put my hands around his hands. I covered him, bracing for impact that if we were to tumble, I would shield him from injury. And to the casual observer, if you looked at us coming down the mountain, you may have only seen one body. I was filling the same space as he was. 
we made it to the bottom of the mountain, went through the briar patch. I had him covered up and uh, escaped with only minor scratches and torn jackets. And I returned him to his mom, who gave me that look. He better be all right. (laughs) This is what Elisha is doing in this story. He is identifying with the boy, trying to preserve his life. Now, let's pause in the story for just a minute and let's reflect on death for a minute. Because no matter your religious background, no matter whether you would call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ or not, death is a fundamental problem for all of us. You will either or have faced the death of a loved one or even your own death. And I would suggest to you that no philosophy, no religion, no worldview that does not address death can be of any use to us. C.S. Lewis wrote, It is hard to have patience with people who say there is no death or that death doesn't matter. There is death and whatever is matters. And whatever happens has consequences. And it and they are irrevocable and irreversible. You might as well say that birth doesn't matter. Now, it's one thing to talk in general about death. It's another thing to experience the death of a loved one. You know how that feels? That kick in the gut? The air that leaves your lungs? And sometimes the way that we will cling to a lifeless body. Why does it feel that way? One theologian had asked if eating and sleeping are so natural and death is natural, then why does it feel like an amputation? Let me suggest three things to you that make it so devastating. One, perhaps it's not natural. Perhaps death is unnatural. Perhaps we were created to live forget forever, and death is an intruder into this world. Let me suggest another reason that death might be devastating. There's the permanent nature of death, that when someone dies, it's not simply that we can get on a plane and fly somewhere and speak to them again. And another reason that I would suggest to you that why death is so devastating is this, is that we can develop all kinds of technology and great health care. We can attain great material wealth, but we cannot preserve our own life or the lives of the ones that we love. Death makes us realize that we cannot control the things that matter most in life. And that's why it's so hard to deal with death. So how do you deal with death? How does our culture deal with death? Let me suggest three options to you. One of the ways that you can deal with death is simply to accept it. It's a fact of life and you might as well get used to it. Just make peace with death. There's an Eastern legend about a Hindu woman whose only child had died And she went to the prophet and asked for her child back. And the prophet told her to go and obtain a handful of rice from a house in which death had not come. If she could obtain the rice in this way, he promised to give her the child back. 
So from door to door, she went asking the question, Are you all here around the table? Father, mother, children, none missing? But always the answer came back that there were empty chairs in each house. As she continued on, her grief and sorrow softened as she found that death had visited all families. Just make peace with it. It's a reality. A second way I would suggest that we respond to death is this. Embrace death. I was reading in the Wall Street Journal actually in the last few weeks and there was an article highlighting that there are various colleges and universities now that are offering death classes. And some universities actually have a three-year waiting list for students to get into these death classes. They visit morgues. Um, They go visit murderers on death row. They write their own eulogies and they send uh, letters uh, to their loved ones. They encourage that they discuss and embrace death. The article also mentioned that in over 100 cities there are now death cafes where you come in, have tea, coffee, and you discuss the subject of death. There are also death taverns if you prefer. You can drink beer and talk about death if you prefer that. One of the professors said this, In gaining an awareness of death, we sharpen and intensify our awareness of life. Embrace it. And I would suggest to you one other way, perhaps the most common that we deal with death in our culture is this. We ignore it. We ignore it as much as possible. Avoid the topic by trying to stay fit and beautiful. Don't talk about death. Just ignore it. You can even see this approach in car racing. When talking about fatal car crashes at the Indianapolis 500, one driver, Scott Goodyear, said this, uh, you don't look at where it, fatal car crashes, happened. You don't watch the films of it on television. You don't deal with it. You pretend it never happened. The Speedway operation actually encourages this approach. As soon as the track clears, they go out, paint over the spot where the car hit the wall. And through the years, a driver has never been pronounced dead on the track. Inside this 2.5-mile oval, there's a museum, the Speedway Racing Museum, and there is no memorial to the 40 drivers who have lost their lives there. Nowhere is there even a mention. Deny it, ignore death. What did this woman do? What did the Shunammite woman do? She refused to accept it, embrace it, or ignore death. Her approach was to go find the prophet. Now, she knew she needed Elisha and dragged him there. What are we to do? Are you going to come and grab James, bring him to your loved ones, and have him stretch out on those that you love? Who is our Elisha? Well, the text points to a greater Elisha, and that's the second relationship that we want to look at, that Elisha, a greater Elisha, sorry, identifies with us. Now, when we look at the story of Elisha, a lot of the stories sound very familiar, and they should, because last year we just preached through the life and the career of Elijah, and we noticed that there are several of the same miracles that occur, and this is very intentional. Because as you know, during this time in the life of Israel, Baal worship was rampant among the people. And God had declared war on Baal worship. 
Now, the pagan god Baal was associated with a few motifs, like fire, like water, like resurrection. And so the miracles that Elijah and Elisha are performing is a sustained argument that he is Yahweh, that he is I Am, that he is the only God deserving of worship in the life of Israel. When God had declared war on this Baal worship, there was a prophecy that one would come who would start the war, and that would be Elijah. But Elijah would actually not finish the war against Baal, that there was one to come, Elisha, who would finish the battle. Now, one commentator said that Elisha is the second half of the double acts against idolatry of Israel who brings it to conclusion. Now, your New Testament gears ought to be turning right here. And were you to turn to Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist has been thrown in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus. And his disciples ask Jesus, are you really the one or should we look for another? Now, that's a strange question because John the Baptist leapt in the womb at Jesus He was the first to announce when Jesus came on the scene for his baptism. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But reality was beginning to overcome his hope. And so he asked, are you the one? Now Jesus, in Jesus' way, doesn't give him a straightforward answer in the text. But it is a certain answer. Jesus says this to him. He says, go back and report to John the Baptist what you see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Later, actually, as Jesus would address the crowd around him, he would call John the Baptist, what? Elijah. So who was the forerunner of the Messiah? It was John the Baptist. Who is Elisha, who is the greater Elisha, none other than Jesus. Jesus is claiming the exact same miracles that Elisha performed, saying that he now is the greater Elisha, that John the Baptist announced the coming of the kingdom, and the greater Elisha, Jesus here, has come to fight against sin, death, and Satan, and he is going to win the battle. You see, God created the world perfect and without death. But we sinned, and God said the punishment for sin is death. But instead of killing Adam and Eve, he made them a promise. He said, I'm going to send another Adam, a greater Adam, an Elisha, a greater Elisha, who is going to die the death that you deserve and to live the life that you ought to have lived. And if you place your faith in him, If you identify with Christ, he has identified with you so that his death is your death, that his life is your life. And what can be said of Jesus if you have placed your faith in him is true of you. So all throughout the New Testament, that's why it uses language that says that because Christ identified with us, we are crucified together. We are dead together. We are buried together. We are made alive together. We are raised together. We suffer together. And we are glorified together. Romans chapter 6 summarizes this. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor and uh, driving to his wife's funeral that he was about to conduct, he shared this story. I was driving with my children to my wife's funeral where I was to preach the sermon. As we came into one small town, there strode down in front of us a truck that came to a stop before a red light. It was the biggest truck I ever saw in my life. And the sun was shining on it at just the right angle that took its shadow and spread it across the snow on the field beside it. As the shadow covered that field, I said, Look, children, at that truck and look at its shadow. If you had to be run over, which would you rather be run over by? Would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? My youngest child said, The shadow couldn't hurt anybody. That's right. I continued, and death is a truck, but the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck ran over the Lord Jesus, only the shadow is gone over mother. For those in Christ, death is only a shadow. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we do about the death of our loved ones, of our sons, of our daughters, of our spouses, of our grandparents, of our friends? Do we call James? No. We don't need to call James. Do you know why? We have a greater Elisha. Jesus, who stretched his arms out on the cross, who into his palms took the nails, who breathed his last for us, So for those of you who are in Christ, I can tell you this, that you have not breathed your last. Your loved ones may not be physically raised yet, but their souls are with Christ. And one day, someday, when the trumpet sounds and when Christ returns, their physical bodies will be reunited with their souls for all of eternity. We know Christ is already risen. And if we are united to Christ, then your resurrection is already guaranteed. So as the psalmist says in Psalm 23, we can say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that's great. Resurrection. What a powerful hope for all of us. But what does it mean until that great resurrection? 
How should we then live as believers in Jesus Christ? Let me suggest three things from the text. And it is an alliteration. I don't apologize for it. It'll help you remember it. From the text, we should identify with others. The first thing that we should do is pray. Elisha offers to speak on behalf of others to the king. He intercedes for the Shunammite. And remember, we have a great high priest who is able to understand our brokenness, our hurts, our wounds, and our pains. And something that we don't think about very often, but we have a God, a Father, who knows what it's like to lose His beloved one and only Son to death on a cross. When we pray to our God, our God understands. The second thing that we are to do is we are to pursue the word of the Lord. And the Shunammite woman does some strange things when she doesn't even tell her husband where she's going. She rushes through Gehazi to get to Elisha. And her actions are not uh, condemned in this passage. And what she is doing is she is going straight to the top because the prophet speaks for the Lord. And she knows she needs to hear from the Lord. We need to absorb ourselves with the word of the Lord, Scripture, with His promises, with His assurances. And the last thing that we are to do is this. Pastor one another. Elisha loves his family. He makes haste to get back to her, to her home. He weeps with her. And Christian, hear this. When Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, he wept. We as Christians do not have to have a stiff upper lip that we never weep because we know there is a resurrection. But Scripture tells us to weep with those who weep, to grieve with those who grieve. But there's one difference. We weep with those who weep. We grieve with those who grieve, but not those without hope. That is the amazing assurance of the gospel. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death We do not need to make peace with death. We don't have to accept it, ignore it, or embrace it. You know why? Because Jesus has conquered it. And as we place our faith in Him, as we identify with Christ, we will gain access to places that makes a beggar of our imagination. I'll end with this. One of the most beautiful passages in all of C.S. Lewis's writings appears in the silver chair. King Caspian dies, and all of Narnia mourns. Even Aslan, the Christ figure, mourns. And then this is what Lewis writes. Then Aslan stopped, and the children looked into the stream, and there on the golden gravel of the bed on the stream lay King Caspian, dead, with the water flowing over him like liquid glass. His long white beard swayed in it like water weed, and all three stood and wept, Even the lion wept, great lion tears. Each tear more precious than the earth would be if it was a single solid diamond. Death is painful for all, even for the great lion, but it is not final. And Aslan asks Eustace to drive a thorn into his paw, and the lion allows a drop of blood from his paw to fall into the stream. And at that same moment, the doleful music stopped, And the dead king began to be changed. His white beard turned to gray and from gray to yellow and got shorter and vanished altogether. 
and his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh, and the wrinkles were smooth, and his eyes opened, and his eyes and lips both laughed, and suddenly he leaped, and he stood before them, a very young man. Caspian is alive and well in Aslan's country. Christian, through the blood of Christ, you are alive and well. And Jesus makes the same offer to all of us this morning that he said to the crowd around Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to respond in a way that brings great assurance and comfort and peace, knowing that you are our rock of ages, that our life is hidden with Christ, that you have identified with us in such a way that your death is our death, that your life is our life. Lord, help us to live in the freedom and the joy and the rejoicing of knowing what is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, let us celebrate that today in song, in life, and in fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.